Welcome to another episode of Living Downstream, an environmental radio program on KQUA and brought to you by Umpa Watersheds. My name is Ryan and I am an AmeriCorps member serving in the role of environmental education and outreach leader for the organization. I want to start this show and all episodes of this show by recognizing that the land upon which Umpa Watersheds is located was historically occupied by various indigenous groups, including Cow Creek Umpqua, Coquel, and Malala, among others. In this episode, we'll hear from a forest hydrologist and three members of the organization Partnership for the Umpqua Rivers about water quality. We're here today with Michael Jones, who's going to talk with us a little about water quality. To start things off, can you share a little about some of your experiences working with water? Sure. Um, first off, I'm a forest hydrologist. I've worked uh, you know, on, on national forests, and so not to be confused with a hydraulic engineer or engineers that you know have more of an engineering or a, I don't know, physical background. I started and you know I studied watershed hydrology and uh, in uh, college and went to uh, the country of Chile uh, in South America uh, in the Peace Corps I built stream gauges there um, went back to grad school and worked in the mountains of Arizona on snow hydrology then I was uh, on my first national forest in southern Illinois the Shawnee National Forest uh, where I uh, helped to reclaim a coal strip mine there that was very acidic and uh, we used Chicago uh, sewage sludge to neutralize the acid. Then I spent 30 years on this national forest here uh, on the Umpqua National Forest in out of Roseburg, mostly um, on um, research. Um, I'm interested in algae relationships on the North Umpqua River, lakes, uh, Diamond Lake in particular, and of course lots of timber sales and roads. So uh, that's kind of my background and I'm retired now. Sounds like you've had a wide range of experiences working with water. <laughs> yeah. Um, what exactly does water quality mean or how would one measure water quality for maybe any listeners who don't really know what that term would refer to? Sure, well, as you can imagine, it's a big subject and there's a lot of stuff in water. Uh, uh, one thing that I think will become clear is that water quality and quantity are very closely linked. You know, when you when the river floods, everybody knows it gets muddy looking, and well, that mud is uh, has a big influence on water quality. There are things attached to the mud particles. Uh, streams carry more pollutants. Uh, there's natural stuff that's in water that you expect. So, uh, water quality can be anything from temperature. Uh, you know, just kind of the physical. Uh, characteristics of the water to um, the uh, chemicals that are in it, um, its acid uh, base um, balance, you, you know, we measure with pH. And so measuring water quality depends on what it is you want to know about water quality. Obviously use a thermometer if you want to measure uh, uh, water temperature, but there are meters for pH and conductivity and dissolved oxygen. Uh, and when you get down to the chemicals that people are interested in, then uh, you, you might collect a water sample, send it to a lab. And, uh, but most people 
think you can just send a, send something off and say what's in it, and they're going to say, what do you want us to test it for? Because there's a lot to it. That's a good point, yeah, because sometimes people are looking at water quality for determining whether it's suitable for drinking as opposed to is it suitable for a certain type of animal habitat or for animals to live in um, or yeah is a certain type of material present um, so we'll probably get back to that a little bit later in the discussion how does the landscape of the umqua watershed or the pacific north northwest region impact the water in its rivers well that's a really good question we have a, a great example here uh, the north umqua river which we're all paying attention to now because of the Archie fire and uh, what happened this summer here locally. It's a good example of the different landscapes where the High Cascades is extremely young, uh, kind of was completely changed by the eruption of Mount Mazama where Crater Lake is today. And when you drive up to Diamond Lake and Lamolo, you see it's all flat and uh, the streams run cool and cold. They're pretty constant over the summer and winter. Um, and then there's this huge change around Tokety or uh, below Tokety uh, to the Western Cascades, which is much, much older. I'm not going to try to give you the ages. I'm not a geologist, but it's, uh, it's old. The soils are shallow. Uh, the bedrock is so different. It's bedrock up in the high Cascades is um, porous, it's very young, all those holes in the lava and the bubbles from the gas um, make a lot of storage. And so that's one of the reasons that it absorbs a lot of water and lets it out slowly. You, you get down in the Western Cascades and all those uh, little fractures and uh, cracks and things in the, in the rocks, even the bedrock, have sealed up years and years ago. So the water kind of rains on it and it saturates quickly and, and runs off. So you get these much higher flooding peaks and so forth. Um, and uh, uh, water, there's a lot less water in the summer because it's, you know, there's no sponge to let it out slowly. Uh, and that, those trickles of streams really affect water quality. Obviously it gets hotter, uh, you know, it warms up the same amount of sun goes into a little bit of water as goes into a lot of water up in the high cascades, so it heats it up faster. So our, our landscape's real different, and then the, the river that runs by Roseburg, Glide and Roseburg, is a combination of those two landscapes, blending those, the, the high cascades and the western cascades together. So again, as a contrast, the North Umpqua River um, has a big component of that summer flow coming out and the South Umpqua River doesn't. Uh, so go down to River Forks and you've got a, a big, deep, cooler river coming in from the North Umpqua and a shallow, flashier, uh, certainly warmer South Umpqua River. Yeah, it's interesting how different landscapes can impact the way the water flows and you know, what ends up in the water. <laughs> um, I was wondering if you could speak a little more about how the streams change by season. So maybe what are some of the specific impacts of temperature, weather, or natural events such as rainstorms, floods, fire on the water and the particular matter that ends up in the waterways? Yeah, well that sure gets back to what we were saying earlier about how uh, water quality goes hand in hand with water quantity. Um, so the flashier flows in the Western Cascades give you higher peaks. Um, 
they pick up the, the uh, scour the, the banks, um, you have more sediment in them. Uh, and I mean, for an example of a typical flood, uh, this is with the same sort of frequency or return period over the years, you know, a five-year flood or something, can be one-tenth up in the high Cascades as it is down in the, in the Western Cascades. Um, so uh, I think it's kind of interesting to think about streams uh, as changing through the winter. The season really does change things. Uh, whether you're in the high Cascades or the, or the uh, uh, Western Cascades, we don't get much rain in the uh, summer here. We don't get these summer rainstorms and flash floods that you do in the Southwest or the summer rainstorms in the, in the Midwest, uh, thunderstorms. We get these big frontal storms that come through and they're gradual, uh, they, but they, they rain and they rain and they rain <laughs> for days. So what happens through the season is that first rainfall gets, there's a lot of soil to saturate and it doesn't come up as fast, but it gets up to one level. And the first, the first significant rainstorm is pretty noticeable how muddy the water is because that, that stream, those banks have been sitting there for a year or, or you know, half a year with no, nothing running over them. And then you get another one that's not quite as high and oh, the water's clear and clean because it's all been flushed away. If the one after that is higher, then it's going to reflect the next level up. Uh, the, the stream might even get out of its banks and start uh, getting stuff off the floodplain. And so it can be soil, it can be uh, leaves and brush and logs and whatever. And so on through the, the year, each higher flood gives you the, uh, you know, gives you another boost in uh, stuff uh, scoured and, and taken downstream. Uh, when you get to the storms that are more than once uh, every year or two, uh, we call them a two-year flood or a bankful event that really does go over onto the floodplain. Um, that's when you start to get enough power to move the sediment. Because once the stream goes over the banks, it doesn't have any more power uh, as it gets bigger. Uh, that power is distributed out you know, over a much bigger area. So all the rocks and sand and gravel that are cobbles that are that are there sort of reflect that that bankful flood event. So every time you get one of those, that's when the rocks start rolling. Uh, you know, and people that have been lucky enough to be out there at the time can hear them hear them banging down the creek, and uh, that's a rare event. Uh, not so rare to happen, but pretty rare to be there <laughs> and listen to it. So those bankful events carry a lot more sediments and so forth. And uh, on every particle of sediment, it's whatever's attached to it, uh, especially clay, you know, has a lot of negative particles around it. Anything with a positive charge gloms onto that. And so uh, everything likes to settle out on a balanced uh, plus and minus charge. And then you get the sum total of that is water quality. <laughs> you can tell I could go on. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, there's a lot to it, and it sounds like you have a lot yeah. of knowledge. <laughs> Grateful yeah. for all that you're sharing. So you've spoken some about the impacts of natural events. Um, could you talk a little bit too about how human activities, such as agriculture, logging, building homes, roads, etc., might impact the water in our local streams? Sure. Um, you know, 
if you think about catchments or watersheds, that's everything from the mouth of the creek up to the farthest ridge, and that defines a, an area. Well, it's just like a big bowl, you know, it's, it's, the, uh, it's the rain gauge that catches the six inches of rain. And I remember the first time I calculated that out, said, uh, well, how much is uh, a foot of rainfall on that many acres? And it's way more than the runoff that, you know, that it will keep running until the next storm, because some of it goes in the ground and some of it ends up in the stream that whole watershed has been adjusted over millennia to handle those flows. If, if something was too small to withstand the flows, it washed away a long time ago. So everything's pretty much in equilibrium. And then we come along, you can build as many roads in a watershed, and we have all through Western Oregon, uh, it's very common that there'll be about the same number of miles of road as there are streams. So one way of thinking of roads is you just doubled the miles of streams. Uh, so there's one impact. Of course, if you build a road right and you put rolling dips in it and make it so the water runs off that road periodically, hopefully onto an area that's uh, going to absorb back into the, uh, the soil and into the duff, then uh, it'll only be the last bit of road from from the last culvert or the last road dip until you get to the running stream where the truck rolled over it you know on a culvert or a bridge uh, but the ditch dumped right in so that last bit of road is pretty important so it's important that you don't drive during you know uh, rainstorms that that the road has some rock on it to reduce erosion and, and so forth um, and you know, I've probably used up a whole bunch of time on one human activity, and there are subdivisions, and there are cities, and there are factories, and just like we talked about with water quality and it's uh, all the different parameters, uh, each activity can put something different in into the, to the water. And I guess one concept I'd like to stress is that the difference between building a road right or uh, making a housing subdivision with plenty of places for water to soak into the ground and that the difference between doing it right and just uh, uh, with no thought to that just building a road so all the road dumps into the creek or the subdivision has miles of bare ground uh, that that can be a bigger difference than whether you have a road or a subdivision or not uh, our choice isn't always to not develop anything, but we always have the choice to do it in a better, more hydrologically, uh, you know, benevolent way. So you can carry that on to all kinds of other activities. Before the Clean Water Act, uh, factories and sewage treatment plants, everything, there was a lot more pollution going on from human activities. And we've come a long way since then but we've also increased in population and we have a lot more of those sources. So, you know, as usual, the glass is half empty and half full. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. Um, I was thinking too, I know with the fires, for example, recently, I worry about, uh, as you mentioned earlier, you know, when sediments get washed in um, during flooding events or rainstorms or something, it's also other things on the sediments. It's not just soil that's getting washed into the river. And so, yeah, I worry about, okay, of all the things that have burned and, you know, 
that we talk about the smoke particulates and things that were in the air, we can breathe them, but what if those end up in our water? Um, and they probably already are, you know, so I, I am concerned about that. And I'm wondering what research will come out of, you know, this event down the line and see what measurements have been taken with that too. Yeah, um, I, I would like to, I realize that I did gloss over or I didn't mention wildfire and that's so important right now. And we're all thinking about it. Uh, and, uh, uh, my guess is this last Sunday, the 15th, I guess it was, um, was the biggest flood or first kind of significant storm we've had this, this fall. Uh, I imagine the Glide Water Treatment Plant was holding their breath, crossing their fingers, sort of wondering if they were going to get what they're used to in a storm of, like that, knowing that Rock Creek, most of Rock Creek burned and uh, a lot of the tributaries of the North Umpqua and of course, even into Little River that is comes in uh, downstream of Clyde, they have some options. You know, they can they can uh, maybe they've got some stored uh, water. They can quit taking uh, storing or close the intake for a while when the worst of it goes through. Um, but the turbidity in the river went up significantly, even up, up, upstream of Rock Creek. We can talk a little later about the gauges that are online and people can look for themselves. Um, but you're absolutely right. There's a lot of burn debris. There's a lot of ash, uh, stuff that moves way easier than soil and, uh, you know, the things that have been tested over time and, and uh, have washed away. This is all new debris. Uh, and so anyone that's on Rock Creek, on the North Umpqua, uh, downstream of the fires, um, is bound to see, um, especially in those first flushes, and as the as each storm gets a little higher and accesses a little more bank, uh, they're going to see flushes of of uh, ash and uh, wood. Uh, thankfully, most of those things are pretty benign. We're we're pretty used to 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 that on smaller scales. But I have to say that this fire was bigger than anything I saw in my career here on the Umpqua. Normally, we had. 10 or 15% of a watershed would be severely burned or, or in a fire perimeter. And the numbers are looking like they're up near half or uh, 60% of really moderate to severe uh, uh, burn severity. And, in, in, you know, where the severe means there's just sticks left, all the needles are gone, and uh, all you have is ash and nothing much to protect the ground. Uh, so yeah, a lot of that's going to end up downstream, and uh, just uh, we know less about how much more flooding you get with that, but uh, we certainly think more. It, it's it's hard to get before and after measurements with stream gauges on burned areas because uh, uh, they uh, hard to know where to put your your gauges ahead of time. Uh, but uh, certainly we think that flooding can be uh, can be worse, and. Uh, that always transports more materials. So if, if I were uh, downstream, we'll talk about drinking water later maybe. And uh, I think uh, it's, uh, it's important to know what's in the water and expect that you won't always be able to drink it. <laughs> yeah, I was thinking too, you mentioned about, um, yeah, if there's just sticks left. And so in case people don't know or aren't thinking about you know why it matters if there are trees right next to the river um i know in some of my previous work 
people have talked a lot about having a buffer, having, you know, a certain amount of plants growing, living material, um, so that instead of, you know, when you have these big rain events or storms or floods or different things, you don't have that quick rush of water. The plants help to kind of slow that water so it kind of percolates in or at least doesn't go in so quickly but it, when there aren't the trees there's not plants living there that water can just go in so much more quickly which i think you mentioned a little bit yeah and so you talked a little about the um measuring you know during extreme wildfire events i uh, was on another call uh, recently about trying to measure different you know temperature and different types of qualities um do you have any other information you can share about places that did kind of measure the impact or try to assess the impact on local waterways, you know, whether it's temperature or other factors, um, that maybe there was a gauge in place. Um, I'm, I'm thinking too, like, do gauges burn up, you know, when they're in a wildfire? Well, we had one water quality gauge on the North Umpqua River that quit uh, on Labor Day. Uh, and uh, fortunately, uh, because it's in the water, what burned, I don't know the specifics of it, but uh, uh, what the fire did was cut off its telemetered access, its, its um, phone line or uh, satellite connection, uh, 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 whatever was above ground and, and uh, was destroyed. But the logger kept logging, and uh, now that data is all back online. You can go back and see what it was. Uh, it was upstream of Rock Creek, uh, uh, so uh, it's not showing the big influence of all the area in Rock Creek that burned, that water quality in the North Umpqua River uh, changed from there on down. But this gauge is upstream of Rock Creek on the North Umpqua River. There's another one that is uh, upstream just below Soda Springs Dam, the Pacific Core runs. Uh, that also has uh, water quality parameters. And uh, by that, we mean there's temperature, uh, turbidity, dissolved oxygen, uh, specific conductance, which is just how much of a current it, it will carry. And most things in water have a charge, plus or minus, so they carry a little more uh, conductance, you know, more, more electrical conductance. So it's a measure of, of how much dissolved solids are in there. So that's nice to have a, a five-parameter monitor up at the top of the Wild Scenic River below Soda Springs Dam and right at the bottom of it where it uh, goes, uh, reaches Rock Creek and Idlewild. Um, there are also uh, many more stream gauges that just measure flow. And there's one of those uh, above Copeland Creek on the North Umpqua River, uh, also a Pacific Core gauge. Um, but these are all run by the U.S. Geological Survey. They're on their website and uh, you can do a search for um, Water quality in uh, Oregon or stream flow in Oregon. I think if you if you searched current conditions, water quality in, in Oregon, uh, uh, current conditions is a kind of a little buzzword. If you get a lot of different hits of different things you can click on, they they might all be USGS sites, but current conditions will show you a link to the gauge with the real time data for right now. That's awesome. Thank you. Yeah, I think I'll share that. Great. I could give you the links, yeah. Yeah, awesome. 
Um, so you mentioned some different components of water quality or different types of things that could be measured. And one of those is pH. Um, I know when I was teaching science, I taught about pH, but a lot of people that are listening probably haven't been in school for a while. Um, can you explain for our listeners what pH is <laughs> and how it impacts aquatic life? Sure. Um, pH is real interesting and uh, it's kind of overlooked. Uh, not as geeky as it sounds, uh, but I think if you think about uh, water, uh, we talk about dissolved things in water a lot of the things we're interested in dissolve well they'll have a little plus and a minus charge on them uh and uh we're used to water it has a balance of acid and base and uh on the ph scale of zero to 14 that's a ph of seven and that's real neutral um so ph is really just a measure of the uh free negative ions usually with hydroxyls and oh if you took chemistry uh, oxygen and hydrogen make a hydroxyl uh, or the plus charges on the hydrogen uh, uh, molecules themselves so um, if something is has a lot of hydrogen uh, free hydrogen uh, uh, plus charges in it uh, it'll be acidic it'll have a low ph um, that strip mine that I worked on uh, had a pH of about one, uh, you know, like lower than lemon juice, and uh, it would eat our boots up, you know. So uh, that's the extreme on the low side from acid uh, conditions in a mine. Uh, the high side, uh, alkaline conditions are more common here, uh, and both of these things are stressful for aquatic life. Uh, Aquatic life is like you and I. We we like to we like pH seven in the middle. Uh, so if there's a lot of negative charges up there, then the uh, pH uh, will be high. It'll be basic, and a real practical application of that, which even a lot of uh, water quality people don't really understand that we're pretty unique here on the Umpqua. We have this wonderful clear water quality. And it's clear because there's nothing in it. Uh, and it's so clear that the salmon and steelhead have to go out to the ocean to feed to get big enough to come back and spawn. They can't get over waterfalls if they don't grow. And there's no food here to grow. The food they'd like would be either insects or, uh, you know, even algae or, you know, uh, kind of the food chain. The insects eat the algae and then the insects get big and the fish eat them. Uh, we don't have enough light and nutrients on our shaded forested streams with our cool geology all that water coming down from the high cascades uh, uh, it has a little phosphorus in it but it doesn't have it has almost no nitrogen at all um, and uh, uh, algae and life need oxygen so these clear streams that we have in the summer, especially in the Western Cascades, when there's just a trickle of water coming down, uh, they don't have many waterfalls or riffles to cascade. That's where you mix air into the water and bring the oxygen back up, and 3% of it is, uh, is carbon dioxide. Carbon dioxide is what keeps the pH low. And uh, when you don't have that going on, the pH gets higher and higher. 
in a lot of places that's not a problem at all because there are plenty of other things like calcium and magnesium to tie that all up and the water stays at a neutral uh, level. But here, we don't have much in the water. They're poorly buffered is the term for that. So we get high pHs from low streams with not, much, uh, not many riffles. And that's very uh, stressful for aquatic life. Again, the fish go out to the ocean. Uh, we don't get as many insects. Uh, it's just not a very productive uh, environment. But it also makes it so that we don't have much algae and, we don't, and things are nice and clear. If you do take this, the uh, trees off, warm the water up and get a more light in there, uh, you'll get a little algae growing with whatever nitrogen is there. And guess what? Some of them are blue-green algae and they can fix nitrogen from the air. The air is four-fifths nitrogen. So uh, they start making soluble nitrogen available for more algae to grow more insects, more uh, things. And while that might be good for fish food, it's a two-edged sword. You know, all of a sudden it gets murky, icky, and our streams aren't so unique anymore. <laughs> so uh, it's a very interesting thing. There have been studies on the North Umpqua on uh, algae and water quality relationships. Um, we get very high pHs, even in this beautiful, pristine river. Um, if you wanted to search North Umpqua River, there's some names, uh, Anderson and Carpenter, and my name was on one of the papers, Jones. You can Google those uh, studies, and uh, they're really pretty readable and interesting and give you an interesting view of that landscape of the High Cascades and the Western Cascades and how it affects algae in the river. I was listening and thinking that I think water quality is a lot more complicated or there's a lot more to it than people realize. Um, yeah, there's just so many different components of what comes into the water, how it impacts what lives in the water, um, and also can impact humans as well who want to drink it and use it for, you know, cleaning and things too. So, um, Well, one yeah. of the best advice I got in college was go specialize in something nobody else knows anything about and you'll look real smart. So. <laughs> Some good advice. <laughs> Maybe I'll look into that myself. Um, yeah, so I was thinking too about, um, you mentioned some of the different, you know, components that are measured and uh, added some information about pH. Um, can you talk a little bit about how someone might test or assess for something like pesticides or arsenic or microplastics? Um, how could somebody assess those um, and potentially also remove them. I know people have mentioned some interest in measuring something a little more complicated also like those types of things that can really impact human health and animal health both. Well I've heard teachers say that they uh, once in a while they can get little test kits uh, for exercises for for classes and on a um, uh, there's really some interesting stuff you know we were talking about pH you can get pH uh, testers little litmus paper and things that will help you narrow down the, uh, to get close to what the pH is and temperature and of course carrying a thermometer is we, we have streams on the forest that we know are 10 degrees warmer than the very same stream with almost should be the same the next stream over but uh, the one that's 10 degrees warmer got all the trees cut off uh, you know years ago and it, it's taken many years to grow back. Uh, so just a thermometer can tell you a lot. There are um, certainly 
when you get into the chemicals, the more um, uh, difficult to measure things, collect a water sample, you can take it to a lab. Uh, there are labs online, there are labs locally, but it's pretty expensive. Um, I'd recommend anybody that is taking their water from, uh, even, even if it's for irrigation, but especially if it's for drinking water, get one background test to just see what, uh, you know, what typical summer flow water is like, um, see if there's any huge problems in there. And as I said, it might be expensive, but once or twice, it's, it's certainly worth it. Um, the, um, I, I know you are also interested in uh, what a person can do with their own drinking water. Um, um, oh, and, and I was going to say, if you're on a city water system, if you're in Glide or uh, Roseburg or, you know, out in Garden Valley with a Umpqua Basin water treatment uh, plant out there, uh, usually on their websites, water treatment plants have an annual summary of the testing that they've done. And uh, that'll give you, you know, some, some things that you would never be able to measure on your own. Um, and th those are gen generally on the finished water. So that's what's going into the pipe before it gets to your house. Uh, I'd still recommend um, if you are interested uh, to either treat your water, your drinking water on the counter, if you're worried about things like lead, if you live in an old house or an old piping system, there are things that can be introduced into the water between the water treatment plant and your, and your tap. Uh, and the uh, regrettable, uh, sometimes, consequence of treating water, adding chlorine to it to kill the bacteria, can chlorinate some pretty harmless chemicals, uh, just organic matter and so forth that doesn't, that might make it through the, the treatment plant, maybe in very low quantities. But those have been shown, some of them are carcinogens. And uh, if you're, uh, you know, if you're not eating organic food and uh, avoiding that stuff otherwise, I wouldn't worry about it in your water. But uh, if you have a concern and, you know, you're out there in an organic garden and then you're drinking your water with lead in it, maybe you'd like to have a filter in on the, on the kitchen counter or there are inline things go under the sink. Um, and uh, one I use has a, a tester on it. It's just a little conductivity meter. But if there's anything dissolved in there, it'll show up. And then because it's activated charcoal or activated carbon uh, is one of the layers in the filter, it'll take out those organics and any uh, disinfection by, byproducts, any carcinogens that uh, might be there. We don't know if we should be worried about those things. Um, the plus side of it is can't hurt you to take out the bad stuff. It might hurt you to take out the good stuff. You're, you're removing some calcium and magnesium and some minerals. Uh, I've enjoyed bottled water in Europe that's uh, loaded with thousands of parts per million of healthy minerals uh, that everybody pays more for. And I regret that we don't have that here. But uh, it's probably a small price to pay. You clean everything out of your water, and then if you have a good diet, you're getting that stuff back in your uh, salt and your uh, uh, greens and everything. So, um, yeah, I think paying attention to your health and your water is a, a important thing to do.
Yeah. Well, thank you so much for being on the show today and look forward to talking with you again soon. Okay. It's been a lot of fun. Thanks. You're listening to an episode of Living Downstream on KQUA, brought to you by Umpqua Watersheds. Are you an avid reader? Then you should join Umpqua Watersheds Book Club. Turning Over a New Leaf is a book club for teens and adults who want to learn about and discuss environmental issues and try to make positive change. Umpqua Watersheds has a number of opportunities for the youths in your life. Changemakers is a club for 9 to 12-year-olds who want to change the world. We'll meet on Sundays at 5 p.m. Pacific time starting January 17th. Do you have a high schooler who loves music, writing, or theater? We're starting a radio club for youths ages 13 to 18 to develop their own radio show. Additionally, we're lending science equipment to local homeschooling and non-homeschooling families as part of our Home Explorer program. If you'd be interested in borrowing a water quality monitoring test kit, microscope, or SNAP circuits kit, let us know. Email our AmeriCorps member and environmental education and outreach leader at ryan at umpawatersheds.org or check out our website or Facebook page for more information. I'll be interviewing three people from Partnership for the Umpqua Rivers, or PER, about water quality. We have Sandy Lyon, Joe Carnes, and M.A. Hansen. Sandy Lyon has been working as the monitoring coordinator since November 2003. With 20 plus years in medical research and lab work, as well as with a degree in biology from the University of California, San Diego, Sandy has the skills and knowledge to design and implement basin-wide water quality monitoring programs and studies. Joe Carnes started working for PER in June of 2012 as a part-time summer water quality monitoring assistant for the monitoring coordinator. He worked part-time for about one and a half years and was hired full-time starting the summer of 2014. Even though he was originally hired as a water quality monitoring assistant, Joe has become a key member of the PER staff and serves as assistant monitoring coordinator. He assists with everything from IT support, maintenance, and grant writing to any fieldwork needed. He currently has his associate's degree of applied science in computer information systems. M.A. Hansen joins us today in the role of a volunteer for the Partnership for the Umpqua Rivers Water Quality Monitoring Program. She has also served numerous terms on the Board of Directors for PER and currently serves as the Board Secretary. M.A. has a four-year university degree in environmental studies and planning with freshwater sources as her main interest. She fell in love with this area and moved here so she could swim in the South Umpqua River with her dogs. She immediately became concerned about the conditions of our rivers and contacted PER to see what could be done to improve them and how she could help. She's been volunteering with PER ever since, 15 years. Thank you all for being here today. Joe, what is Partnership for the Umpqua Rivers and what does the group do? Hi, Ryan. First, I would like to say thank you for having us on. Uh, we appreciate the opportunity to share information about who we are with our community. And with that, the Partnership for the Umpqua Rivers, uh, abbreviated as PUR or PER, is a nonprofit, non-governmental 501c3 voluntary corporation. 
We are a watershed council under the Oregon Watershed Enhancement Board that is charged with restoring, enhancing water quality and fish habitat within the Umpqua Basin, which is nestled in Southwest Oregon. We have six staff members, two monitoring, two restoration, one fiscal, and an executive director. PER is governed by a board of directors that represents diverse stakeholders in our watershed. As a nonprofit organization, we write grants to obtain federal, state, local, and foundation funding to support the work we endeavor to complete. In addition to writing grants, PER accepts donations from businesses or individuals. These donations are a tax write-off for the donor. As our mission statement says, we implement restoration and conduct monitoring in the Umpqua Basin for the benefit of fish habitat. Thank you, Joe. Sandy, can you explain for our audience what water quality means to you and your organization? Yeah, hi, Ryan. I'd like to answer your question by giving a brief history of our monitoring program and how it developed into what we do today. Over 17 years ago, a few directors felt that PER should start a monitoring program, but they really weren't sure how to go about this. They applied for grant funding to hire a person to figure it all out. And I became that lucky person and was hired in 2003 to lead that program. The direction of what this would become was left to me. I reached out to the community for volunteers and arranged for a number of trainings by local professionals. We decided that PERS monitoring program would work through the Oregon Department of Environmental Quality's volunteer monitoring program, which provided us the loan of monitoring equipment and gave us supplies. A requirement of DEQ's program was writing and adhering to a quality assurance plan. This plan meant that if we would follow appropriate scientific protocols and guarantee accuracy and reproducibility of our data, then we could be vetted and approved by DEQ. This would allow it, the data to be entered into their public database, which is called AWQMS, A-W-Q-M-S, Water Quality Monitoring Database, and if your audience is interested in finding that, probably the easiest way is to search for DEQ and AQUAMS. But it's a neat database because all monitoring that's vetted through DEQ is available on this database. So you can look up yourselves what information is available on your local creek. So under this program, we began grab sample monitoring in the Myrtle Creek area where we had the most volunteers. They wanted to learn about the condition of the waters in their streams and rivers. And MA was one of those very first volunteers at that time living and still does at times in Myrtle Creek. PERS focus is primarily on whether the state of our waters are in good enough condition for survival and reproduction of healthy fish and aquatic creatures. Of course, we always wanted to know how safe our waters are for recreational and drinking water uses. With the various parameters that we monitor, we aim to gain a scientifically based understanding of current and changing watershed conditions. Our data provides per project planning team and our partners 
information to support where restoration planning could be beneficial. Gathering data where future restoration efforts may be planned also provides us with pre-water quality parameters that can later be compared to post-restoration data to determine the effectiveness of restoration efforts. I think I should probably stop there. <laughs> Thank you for all that information, though. <laughs> You're welcome. M.A., can you tell us about PERS volunteer monitoring program? I should be able to. We volunteers help collect samples in the field with the staff monitoring team. This provides them an extra level of safety for them having company along in case anything was to go wrong. We are out there in all types of weather from hot sunshine to cold downpours, icy conditions, and even an, a frozen river. We accompany the staff monitoring team to the field to help collect water quality samples and also collect mackerel invertebrate samples. They then take the samples to their lab at the PER office on Harvard Avenue to process. It would not be possible to collect all this valuable information without the support from the dedicated volunteers that they have. We volunteers also participate in selection of monitoring sites. We bring valuable knowledge about our own watersheds that we know best. I personally learned a lot about my own watershed through the monitoring. I, I own uh, acreage out in uh, near Myrtle Creek and that's where we were first monitoring when I started. I find the time that I have had the honor to volunteer with the PER monitoring staff, very educational. I always feel very rewarded and appreciated for the time I spent with them. And I would like to thank you, PER monitoring staff, and thank you, Ryan, for having us. Sounds like a great opportunity if there are any people out there wanting, uh, looking to volunteer with a good organization. <laughs> yes. Joe, I'm going to ask you a couple of questions next. What qualities does your group measure and how do they measure those things? Yeah, that's a good question. Our organization is focused on parameters that can affect fish habitat and their health. Um, PER uses a multi-parameter water quality sonde. Uh, this device has the ability to attach many different types of probes to the main unit. The sonde records the information in the field, allowing for an easy digital offload of the collected data from each site. With the sonde, we measure and collect grab sample data on temperature, conductivity, pH, dissolved oxygen, turbidity, and are planning to add nitrate soon. We also collect data on bacteria, total coliform and E. coli. To obtain this information, we collect a 100 milliliter sample of water. The sample is then placed on ice until we return to our lab. At this point, we then add a specially formulated reagent to the sample. This reagent allows us to easily interpret the sample later. Then the sample is mixed, allowing the reagent to dissolve. We then pour the 100 milliliter sample into a tray with 49 large wells and 48 smaller wells. 
This tray is then sealed and placed into an incubator at 35 degrees Celsius or 95 degrees Fahrenheit for those unfamiliar with Celsius measurements. After incubating for 18 hours, the samples can then be read to determine the most probable number of total coliform and E. coli per 100 milliliters. This is determined by the number of wells in the tray that appear yellow, and then with a UV light, how many cells that were yellow also fluoresce. In addition to grab sample temperature data, we also collect continuous temperature data. This is primarily done during low flows in the summer months. These temperature recorders are set to record once every 30 minutes for the duration of their deployment. This year, we had temperature loggers deployed out in the Rock Creek area that burned in the Archie Creek fire. The data collected from these loggers showed us some interesting information. Although the fire burned severely through the area, primarily only little stream temperature spikes were observed. This is good news for the aquatic life. The conditions in the stream never demonstrated levels that would be harmful to in-stream life. During the retrieval of these loggers, we observed fish spawning and beaver activity. PER also conducts effectiveness monitoring on some select restoration projects. This includes other types of monitoring such as macroinvertebrate collection and analysis, stream profiling with cross-sections, photo points to track visual changes, and habitat surveys collecting data on the physical characteristics of the stream. It sounds like a lot of good information to know about your local waterway. It is. What factors currently impact water quality in the Umpqua watershed specifically? So to answer this question, I'm going to defer to the Department of Environmental Quality. So DEQ lists several factors that impair streams in the Umpqua Basin watershed. They break these impairments down generally by sub-basin. The three sub-basins are the North Umpqua, South Umpqua, and the Umpqua. For the Umpqua and North Umpqua, temperature and habitat modification are listed as concerns. In the South Umpqua subbasin, however, temperature, habitat modification, bacteria, harmful algal blooms, dissolved oxygen, pH, nitrate, and turbidity are all listed as water quality concerns. Many of these impairments are parameters that we track and, as an organization, work to improve. Thank you, Joe. I'm going to switch now back to Sandy. Sandy, how can people assess the levels of such pollutants like arsenic, pesticides, and microplastics? I'm guessing those might be things that are a little tougher to test. They are, indeed. Unfortunately, it's, it's very expensive to measure levels of most pollutants accurately and beyond our current capabilities. We were able to participate in a DEQ pesticide monitoring program for about five years, but uh, we just gathered the water samples and then sent them off to DEQ to analyze. Many of these chemicals are considered to be dangerous at extremely low levels, and they take expensive, complicated equipment to analyze. So DEQ did that and produced a report on it, which you, Joe, do you know if that's available online yet? I think it. I'm not sure if it is. Yeah, we'll we'll try to let you know when it's available online, Ryan. It isn't comprehensive all over, but but there were six sites that were useful, and I imagine your audience might want to know. So. 
so we'll get back to you on that. But uh, DEQ also has an ambient monitoring crew that monitors six sites in Douglas County once every other month um, for numerous parameters, including heavy metals. This kind of data can be found on their Occlums database that I mentioned earlier. And uh, periodically, DEQ produces reports called the Umqua Basin Status Report and Action Plan, where they summarize uh, you know, what they have found. And the latest that I could find was uh, July of 2014. And again, if you Google DEQ uh, Umqua Basin Status, you'll, you'll find that one. So that's the only way that we've been able to, to tap into these difficult-to-measure pollutants and heavy metals. Thank you. Um, I guess this next one would probably be for Joe and Sandy. What can be done to mitigate negative impacts, you know, bring those negative factors in check? Yeah, so PERS strives to work with any willing landowner around the basin to develop a plan that will work for both the landowner um, and their specific needs, depending on their land use and their desires, in addition to what will be more beneficial for the environment. After a plan is reached, we work with them to implement anything from stream restoration to any best management practices they are willing to adopt. Um, this can be anything including things like riparian fencing for livestock exclusion, uh, riparian planting, off-channel stock water, um, installation of bridges or culverts, and the list can go on depending on the individual situation. In addition to restoration activities, we also strive to educate landowners on how and why these types of activities can improve habitat on their property and in turn affect the entire stream's overall health. And speaking of education, I know I'm not telling you anything, Ryan, but education is the best and often the only way to reduce the impacts of anthropogenic pollution. That word means caused by humans. And uh, per try this, and we produced a series of meetings a few years back called the Healthy Homes of Myrtle Creek. M.A. will remember this well, as she was a major part of it, as a way of trying to address this issue. We talked about alternative non-toxic products that can be used in our homes and gardens. Unfortunately, in these modern times, humans are constantly producing new products, such as those microplastics that you mentioned, that are used in skincare products and such that cause damage to our stream creatures. Prescription drugs are also very harmful to wildlife on many levels. So it's going to take education to try to teach people how not to introduce these things into their watershed and education to teach the world how we might make better choices. That's why it's so great to have you all on the show today. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Um, I guess my last question, um, I'll put this back to Joe. How can people get involved with PER? That is a great question for us. So um, individuals or groups that are interested in participating with PER on this type of work have many options, many levels of volunteerism that they can contribute. 
someone that would like to start by just receiving updates about things that are happening with PER can join by becoming a member. Membership does require a small donation, a minimum of $20. This will add them to, the, to a list where they will receive updates and information about events related to PER, such as our board meetings. An individual could also endeavor to become a board member. Although positions are limited, we currently have several openings. In addition to being a member or board member, interested parties can also contact us to volunteer with PERS monitoring program, helping to collect valuable data throughout our watershed, or with our restoration program, working to restore habitat. Anyone interested in our organization can go to our website at umquarivers.org or follow us on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash umquarivers. Thank you all for being on the show today. Thank you for having us. As always, thank you for listening to another episode of Living Downstream. If you have an idea for a future topic you'd like to hear covered on the show, let me know by emailing ryan at umpoolwatersheds.org. Again, that's ryan at umpoolwatersheds.org. Come back next week to hear from other local experts about another environmental topic related to Southern Oregon. The intro and outro music for this show are excerpts from the song Forest by Vlad Glushenko, used under the Creative Commons Attribution 3.0 license. You can find more information about this song in Living Downstream's information section.